Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today's episode is with my gorgeous mom, Dr. Rebecca Levy Gant. Dr. Levy Gant is a board-certified OBGYN and a certified menopause practitioner who has been practicing for the last 10 years in Napa, California. Her special interests are menopause management, including hormones and alternative management strategies, as well as vaginal and vulvar pain syndromes. She owns a solo private practice, which she has been growing for the past five plus years. Let's give a warm welcome to my mom, Dr. Rebecca Levy Gant. Have you ever heard of Smile Makers? This vibrator brand was created to bring our pleasure products out of the sex shops and into the open. Never sold in adult stores, you can find their vibrators in retailers like Free People, Revolve, Saks Fifth Avenue, and more, as well as online. The design of their vibrators is very unique and elegant. Each of their vibrators was designed for a specific stimulation of the anatomy of the vulva. Focus stimulation on the clitoral glands as well as the G-spot. Check them out at www.smilemakerscollection.com and redeem your free bottle of generous gel lubricant with any purchase above 50 US dollars with my special coupon, SexEdDB. Have you had trouble getting birth control during quarantine? Meet Pandia Health. By people with uteruses, for people with uteruses, and led by a doctor, Pandia Health makes your life easier by bringing birth control by mail. Pandia Health offers free and confidential delivery of the pill so you don't have to go out of your way to get the healthcare you need. Skip the trip to the pharmacy. Go to pandiahealth.com, that's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com, and use code SEXEDDB to get $5 off your first telehealth appointment. Follow them on Instagram, at pandiahealth. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Clonawilly. Clonawilly has been all about dick since 96, and all kits are hand-assembled in Portland, Oregon. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase of any Clonawilly or Clonapussy kit at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG, at Kit. Mom, welcome to season four of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Danielle. <laughs> um, welcome back. This is your fourth occurrence on the podcast. How does that make you feel? Yes, I was looking through your uh, website yesterday, and I saw my own face four You're times. There, four <laughs> times. Different images. I looked- I look remarkably the same for the last four years. I guess that's what happens when you get old and don't cut your hair differently. It's you're beautiful. (laughs) Even though old people are beautiful, you're just not old. Um, Okay. Okay. Welcome back for our new listeners or people who just have amnesia. Can you please remind everyone who you are with your name, your pronouns and what you do? Okie doke. I am Dr. Rebecca Levy-Gant. I am an obstetrician and gynecologist with my own private practice. 
now six years in the running, but I've been doing it for probably the last 23 years. I live in Napa, California. My most important job is I'm Danielle's mom. (laughs) And and, uh, my pronouns are she and her. And I am a mostly menopause specialist now in the latter years of my practice, but I still do deliver babies and I do lots of contraception and fertility care. And uh, I do a lot of writing. I'm about to have a book published, so oh, I'm really excited it's about so that. so good. I can't wait to promote it on all of our channels. Thank you. So I'm excited because that's kind of a second career for me. And um, I'm really happy to be here talking to you today. Same, Mom. Just like every day. Um, okay, so we're here today, though, <clears throat> specifically to talk about hyposexuality disorder. Um, because this is a thing that I think is not really, you know, similar to menopause and similar to other things that you've talked about on previous seasons. There are a lot of things for older populations that young people, especially not in sex ed, but just as adults, we don't really learn about and talk about. So I would love for you to first define hyposexuality disorder and then talk about how common it is among which age groups. Okay, so there's actually a diagnosis, and it is defined as something called HSDD, which is hyposexual desire disorder. And like any diagnosis that we have in medicine, it has to meet certain criteria in order to get someone that diagnosis, in order to, for our purposes, to code it when we see somebody and to um, get insurance companies to actually pay for it and to actually realize that it's a real disorder and something that we may be able to help people with. So once you have that terminology, hyposexual desire disorder, you have to kind of look at what comprises that. And it's extremely prevalent. I have to say in my practice, I um, I do ask all my patients about uh, things to do with sexuality as far as relationship issues and desire issues and satisfaction issues. And I have to say it's probably If I ask, it's probably one of the most common complaints that I hear among all age groups, but gets uh, more prevalent as women age, especially into the perimenopause and menopausal um, years. It is, uh, to, to give it the definition, it actually has to meet certain criteria, and the criteria are on a very short list of things where I can actually give women, and I do, a little checklist as per, is this the way you would describe your own situation? And uh, one of the things is, uh, do you have, did you used to have more desire than you have now, and now it's dwindling? Do you want to have more desire? Are other things okay in your relationship? Like, we want to make sure that it's not something to do with a recent surgery, a recent pregnancy, uh, other medical conditions, medications that they may be on, relationship issues. So once you kind of weed out all of those things, then you think you're dealing with this particular disorder. And then the last question, and this is probably the most important, is, is this causing you distress, either personal distress or distress in your relationship? Because if that element is not there, then they don't truly meet the criteria for this because there are many women that do not have sex, do not want to have sex, and it's not 
burdensome. It's not bothersome to them in their relationship. So far be it for me to be dictating to someone how they should feel or what they should want. It's got to be a personal decision as per this is causing me distress Mm -hmm. in my relationship or in my personal life. So that's kind of the short version of the definition of that. I'd also have to say that if I left it to patients to bring it up with me, it probably would not be discussed as much because um, there have actually been quite a few studies which, where they've surveyed women about whether their healthcare practitioners actually bring this up at their visits. And most women say it's not something that their healthcare practitioners talk about on a regular basis. So mm-hmm you know, unless I make it part of my intake form, like if I'm seeing a new patient, that should absolutely be one of the questions that I address with them. And if they say it's not a problem, I don't really pursue it unless something comes out later on for it to be a problem when they initially said it wasn't. But in general, it's pretty easy to at least address it by asking a question. Because if I waited until someone brought it up to me, just like many other issues that women don't bring up to me unless I address it, we'll never talk about it. Okay. And how, how common is it? And like, who, who is, is kind of identifying with, uh, HSDD? I would say almost 50% of women have some type, some, some element of this, I would say. Um, once we do the weed out and once we ask all the questions, a lot of women who actually present with that complaint, like I want to do something about my libido or my interest is low. For a lot of those women, we we weed out with those initial questions that we ask. But I would say if I just across the board asked every single woman one screening question, like, um, are you happy with your level of desire currently? I would say about 30 to 40% of women would say, probably not in some respect. All so that's ages? a pretty high number. Um, well, the higher numbers, the higher percentages would be as women age. So in there's a couple of places where it actually spikes. Right after someone has a baby, so in the six months to a year or so after that, there's a lot of talk about low libido or, or Is that part relationship of like postpartum and kind of Exactly, exactly. Depression? So that's, that's a... Right. That's a very, not, not, not always depression, but, but the, the whole, um, the whole, uh, the whole number of things that would happen after someone has a baby in, uh, you know, changing roles and exhaustion and not getting enough sleep and, and trying to become this new family, all that's a very specific time where women feel like, wow, I think I'll never feel that way again. But then as they get into the the rhythm of being a, a new family and things work out well, if they don't have any major complications or medical problems, that usually comes back around within a year or so. So at that point, you know, women should be kind to themselves and kind to their relationships. And there's a lot of other things that we get into. So that's a specific period in time. Then it spikes again when women are in their 40s. And some of it is triggered by hormonal changes because once women are in their 40s, they're making less estrogen, they're making less testosterone, which we'll talk about those hormones as far as what are some of the remedies for these problems. But once hormones start to change, then menstrual cycles start to change and mental health starts to change a little bit. And, you know, there's a lot of other surrounding things that go along with another 
change in life, moving from reproductive age into perimenopause and menopause. So it starts to spike again. And then, of course, in menopause, when women are not making any hormones anymore, when their ovaries shut down, it, of course, goes exponentially higher for a couple of reasons. One is a lot of women just feel like, oh, that's a natural thing. Their physicians have told them older women shouldn't be as interested in sex. And it's natural to lose your interest and not want to be sexually active, which is totally not true. I mean, men want to be sexually active in general forever. (laughs) And women in good relationships and good mental health and good medical condition and, and, and a lot of other, you know, supportive environments also can be sexually active forever if they want to. It's not something that should be expected to just not want it anymore. So, and also a lot of older women find themselves single or widowed or divorced or not in relationships. And, and that becomes wh- part because of the Because women as well. stay alive longer than their male partners typically? True. <laughs> Is that True. why? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so, interesting. There are definitely a lot more younger quote unquote people or women who like you're saying um, kind of can and are diagnosed with this that more than I realized, I mean, 30 to 40% is a really big percentage. And especially if they're, you're describing it kind of as three stages, potentially, like obviously it can happen in a multitude of, you know, stages and, and phases of life. But it sounds like right after pregnancy, like forties ish when hormones are changing and like sixties plus. True. Okay. True. Okay. Um, so can you, so we had someone on this season actually who identifies as homo romantic asexual and he kind of described like, you know, that in, which I didn't really realize, but how with asexuality, there are kind of multiple, it's a spectrum as well. So there are like people who identify as asexual who like are repulsed by sex, who are like very much on the end of the spectrum of like, I'm not interested at all. There are some people in the middle, which is how he kind of identified, which is like, yeah, I don't mind it. Like I'll, I'll like do it. And like, it's pleasurable, but I'm not like, I don't have that sexual drive. And there's kind of like the other end of the spectrum where it's like, well, if my partner really wants to do it, then like, you know, maybe it's a situational or what have you or things like that. So can you kind of describe maybe and differentiate between HSDD and asexuality because I think like it seems to me as like even though I'm kind of like a public health professional and understand that there are spectrums it seems like potentially there's maybe like a fine line um, if you don't have kind of the right information as to what HSDD really is so can you kind of talk about the differences between those two kind of identities or you know obviously one's a disorder and one is a an identity but talk about the differences. Sure. I think that comes down to the one thing that I said was the last question on that little questionnaire that we do with people, which is, is this distressing to you? Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't seem that the choice that someone's making or the feelings that they have is something that is distressing to them personally or to their relationship, I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to cause it HSDD because HSDD centers almost completely around the fact that women are seeking help for that because they don't want it to be true because it's distressing to them. Someone who is asexual 
and that's okay with them. I don't think anyone should be trying to label that as a disorder or because that's not the norm that you might think about or I might think about that there's something wrong and it's our job to charge in there and try to fix that in somebody. I think that's a, a, a choice that if it's not distressing and that's okay with somebody's life, I would not diagnose it as anything. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the key then for HSDD is kind of like if you are wanting more and you like for some reason it's not happening for you, like maybe mentally you are there, but physically you're not there, then maybe that's more on the side of HSDD where asexuality is more so like, hey, if I don't really want this and I don't really care about it, then maybe I'm on a spectrum of asexuality. Right, because in in HSDD, like when I'm evaluating somebody, um, not only do we ask, is it personally distressing? It might not be personally distressing. I can't tell you the number of women who come into me and say, I'm not really that interested. And if my husband didn't want it I, and I never did it again, I wouldn't really care. And I really have to get to the bottom of that a little bit because when you look at a relationship like that, that is some relationship distress because who wants to be in a relationship who's having sex with somebody who doesn't care, doesn't want it, and is not interested? I mean, very few people that I would know. So that is a form of distress. So, and, and there's a couple of kind of, I guess, a little question, certain questions that I can ask people if we really want to get to the bottom of it, if they can't really tell if it's the kind of thing that's distressing to them, like I tell them sometimes. Um, so imagine that everything were perfect in your relationship. Your husband was washing the dishes and made you dinner and gave you a massage and showered and he smells great and all those things. And you're on vacation somewhere. So you don't have any stressors. You know what I mean? Like if you tell somebody that everything is great and there's no relationship stress and your kids are not in the next room listening to you at that point, would you want it? And then if the answer is still no, there's something going on there, especially if that no answer is making them cry because that's what I see sometimes. Like they'll come in and tell me, Oh, my husband, he wants it all the time. And I'm not interested at all. And we laugh about it sometimes, but underneath that, that is not a healthy relationship. And they may not have come in asking for the help, but then when we get down to it and ask, is this distressing to you? I obviously see that it is distressing to them. So again, far be it for me to say, Oh, I want to fix this for you, even if you don't want it fixed. But after the conversation, after I know somebody, exactly. And once I have a relationship with this person and I've ruled out that it's not because it's painful and it's not some other mental health issue and it's not exhaustion and all those other things, if at the bottom of that, it is still distressing to them, I'm here to help them try to fix that. Yeah, gotcha. Well, yeah, this is also kind of making me think, though, because you mentioned before about, like, medications that, like, people can be on. Like, I know if people are on, like, antidepressants or on, like, bipolar medication or certain medication that could. Also, I want to, like, mention, you know, for people with penises, for men, for, you know, cisgendered men who kind of are like, yeah, I'm unable to, like, keep an erection. Like, that also kind of plays into it of maybe they are interested mentally, but their body isn't really responding. Like, can you talk a little bit about how medications like that could have an impact on both men and women when it comes to, and, and non-binary people, people of all, um, all genders and people who identify in every which way that impacts the body. Can you talk about that? Sure. When you're talking about inability to hold an erection, although my patients are 
usually women with vaginas or people with vaginas. Right. Um, of course, um, it, within the context of taking care of my patients, it's it's very often a relationship thing. And um, it's not uncommon for me to sort of work with a woman who's having one of these problems only to reveal through the conversation that, oh, and yes, my partner has either had prostate cancer or he's older or he had he's on medication. So medications and medical problems, uh, medical um, uh, med medical diagnoses for um, ED, for erectile dysfunction, are definitely something that need to be unraveled first because um, antidepressants, uh, diabetic medications, antihypertensive. So if somebody has high blood pressure and they're on a medication, along with many other medications, but those are the three big ones that can actually cause that problem for erectile dysfunction. And in women, for sure, a certain class of antidepressants, the SSRIs, which are serotonin medications, actually are very well known to have sexual side effects in women. I, and I've had many patients who have said things like, I was having mental health issues. I went to a psychiatrist or to my internist and I got some therapy and, and everything with my relationship seemed to be okay at that point, except that I was depressed or anxious. And then they put me on this medication and now I feel so much better, but I'm totally not interested in sex. And that's a problem because for me, knowing that there are other antidepressants that you could maybe switch somebody to, I would certainly go there first to try to re relieve this, this issue or, the, or, or to treat this problem rather than just say, oh, well, that's what you have to give up by having better mental health because that's not the solution. Mm -hmm. You can't give up one problem for another. So yeah, antidepressants in certain classes definitely have the, the track record of causing decreased uh, libido or decreased desire. Yeah, for sure. And would you say just to cap that conversation off, just that like birth control can also have similar impacts or is that more kind of like I'm thinking of certain birth control that like for example that I've been on that like makes it really dry like in the vagina or things like that that kind of can make it less pleasurable but don't forget by definition if there's vaginal dryness and there's less pleasure because of some physical entity that's not necessarily HSDD right. that's something that we would weed out when we do that initial conversation because one of the uh, survey questions is, are you on any medications or anything that we feel might be causing this problem? So right. then I don't address it with my medications for HSDD. I go to the source of the problem, change the birth control first, mm -hmm. and then we, we revisit the situation. So maybe the key here is the whole idea of like the mental state, like mentally, like, do you kind of maybe want it and you're like physically kind of not able or like un unwilling or for, for whatever reason, like it's just not happening physically. Right. Um, if the desire is there, but something is not moving it along to the next stage, that's different. HSDD by definition is lack of desire that's distressing to you or in your relationship. So again, the mm, idea the of the beach and the vacation and, yeah. you know, everything is totally perfect. Your and you super still hot and you're like in, you would have been into it, but for some reason you're not into it. You're just, you know, would you rather just go to sleep? <laughs> you know, you, in perfect circumstances. And is that distressing to you? Like many women right. say to themselves, why don't I just want it? And they don't understand. It's not like flipping a switch. Maybe when you're 25, 
you know, right. that you could say, okay, something just triggered me. You know, I saw a picture of this hot guy or I saw something that interested me or whatever. And it's like flipping a switch. That's because you've got all these hormones and there's so many things going on at that age. Although this does exist in younger ages as well. Don't get me wrong. I definitely see it. But as women age and of course, familiarity and relationships and, you know, relationships take work to continue to make them exciting and oh, yeah. want to continue that's basically with your partner because I was just listening to a podcast armchair expert um with Esther Perel and she talks a lot about cultivating desire and just how like it's it's work to like really like just because if you've been with your partner for like 10 years you don't want to like jump their bones as soon as you see them you need to work to really cultivate that desire because it can become more challenging to do that and we have this expectation of like oh well maybe I don't love you anymore it's like no that's not what right. it is it's People all about wrap creating things up that. so much that's yeah. right. People wrap things so much like, oh, if I don't want him or if he, I don't act like I want him, maybe I we don't I don't love him anymore. You right. know, and that's really not true. And, and that's why I know we weren't going to get into this very much. But as part of the things that I recommend, I don't do it myself, but I refer people to sex therapists mm -hmm. because if part of this is trying to figure out how to spark that fire mm -hmm. and and that seems like that is all that it would take. Like you're just in such a rut. We we live together like brother and sister. We just don't do the things we used to do. The kids are always home. They're especially now we're in quarantine. Kids are always <laughs> home, right? So people have said to me, you know, in these last couple of weeks, it things have been harder. Like if you want to make the time because you still have the interest, great. But compound the fact that it's much harder to get time and it's much harder to be, be alone. And you're, st you're worried about, and I'm really not that interested anyway. I don't care. Let's just watch TV and go to sleep. Who, who, you know, it's very hard to treat that in this, in this particular scary time. Yeah. These are all really good points. And it's just making me think that like, there's, you know, as I brought up in the beginning of this question, there seems to be kind of like a fine line or like you need to ask the right questions when thinking about like asexual or, you know, um, HSDD. And also there's another line on the other side of like, yeah, but how is your relationship in general? Like, are you happy? Right. And again, are you, exactly. Yeah. And again, if it's a relationship issue, it's not necessarily HSDD. Mm -hmm. You got to work on the relationship issue first, because then of course you can ask one other little question. If it wasn't this person, if you had the perfect person that so you, you got out of a Dwayne the Rock Johnson, are you interested? And you know what? If you're not, that's HSTD. Right, right. So if you're picturing <laughs> you're the hottest man on the planet or the hottest person on the planet, you. personally, Paul Rudd is really up there. If I thought of Paul <laughs> Rudd and couldn't think like wow, I would want to have sex with him and I wasn't feeling like that, I'd be like, maybe there's something going on. <clears throat> yeah. All right, moving right along. This is very fascinating. I'm learning a lot. Okay, so let's see what the next question is. We have um, remedies. Okay, so you kind of talked about this before we started recording, how there's like so many things and I wish we had all the time in the world, but we have not that much time. We have about, you know, whatever, 15 minutes. So keeping that in mind, um, what are some remedies for hyposexuality disorders? Um, are they easily accessible in terms of like payment, um, you know, physically getting access to these things, needing to have certain appointments or, uh, you know, access to certain doctors? Like what, what do those remedies look like? Um, and kind of lay out what access to them looks like. Okay. 
Um, there are several different categories of medications, and some of them actually fall into the supplement area. So things that people can actually buy over the counter, but they may not really be sure what they are or what they might do. Um, and usually supplements, I have to say, as you know, I've used this term before, I'm an evidence-based physician, which means I make all of my my diet, my um, recommendations to my patients based on medical evidence. So I look she for studies. Like I look bullshit for bullshit vitamins that don't have any proof. Exactly. <laughs> so, but the thing is, some of these supplements that are on the list, they have some small studies behind them. And I have to say, I do use some anecdotal information because if I see some small studies and I tell my patients, okay, these are the supplements that you could try. There's a few small studies behind them. They're unlikely to harm you. So why don't you try it out? So I keep my own small tally of whether patients come back and say, hey, I really did feel a difference. And again, maybe that's placebo effect. I don't know. But then I'm able to use that information to give it to other patients or to tell people like you about it. Mm -hmm. So there's one category of, let's say, supplements. There's another category of um, uh, prescription medications that are specifically designed for low libido or HSDD, and there's a few of those, very few. And then there's another category of things that we know work that have studies behind it but are not FDA approved. Mm. So that's going to be my last category for you. Okay, so I'm going to – I recently wrote an article about this actually that um, was published online on Medium that is called – um, what's new to ignite that desire fire? So, and I kind of list these out so that anybody who's not listening to this with a pen in hand or, or typing down these um, this information can can read it there as well. But this is the gist of it. So, first, the things that fall into the supplement category. So, they have some small studies to support that they may result in an increase in, in interest in sexual activity and seemingly safe to take. So one is very simple. It's called Zestra, Z-E-S-T-R-A. Get that zest back in your life. (laughs) It's an over-the-counter arousal gel. It is in the aisle in the pharmacies where you buy your lubricants and other various um, sexual aids. Yeah, well, it is a lube, but it's considered an arousal gel. So it contains evening primrose oil, some other types of extracts like angelica root extract and some other things. It's intended to be applied outside on the outer uh, female genital area or anybody's genital area, actually, to um, bring kind of a rush of blood flow to the area. So seemingly it works this way. Let's say you may not be that interested, but you put this on with the thought that how does it usually work? It usually works and the way everybody thinks it should work is I have a thought in my head. I might be interested in having sex. So then I get that rush to the genital area of blood flow and congestion, et cetera. So so if you're willing to work a little opposite and say, okay, I'm going to put this on so I get a warming rush and maybe that rush will then feed back to my brain and go, hmm, that's the feeling that I have when I'm interested in having sex. And then it also works as a lubricant. Uh, One warning is uh, not to put too much of it on because it can be extremely um, not burning like. Yeah, not burning like an actual burn, but if you bring too much blood flow, it, some women have told me that it make it it causes discomfort. Mm, okay. So I would be really ginger with exactly how to use it. But basically, um, in my practice, uh, I would say sixty forty. You know, about about sixty percent of women have said yes. If this is the the issue, 
and they are willing to do it in a little bit backwards where, you know, the sensation comes first and then the thought, then it works for them. So that's, that's one thing. Secondly, there is a supplement that's out there uh, made by a company called Bonafide, B-O-N-I-F-I-D-E, and you buy this online. I'm not connected to them in any way. Do not get any money from them. Something called Ristella, and that's a supplement that has a couple of different amino acids in it. It's an oral medication, uh, an oral supplement, actually, that contains arginine, uh, citrulline, and rose hips. And uh, it is it has a few small studies behind it where women have said that when they take it regularly, it's something that you take every day, it also caused an interest and, and, and a more uh, satisfying arousal mm. uh, on, a, on a more regular basis. And you really have to be on it for probably about three to four weeks to feel much of a difference. But I would say with the patients that I've recommended this to, it's again about 60, 40 people. Once I recommend it and they, they buy it and use it, they have, many of them have stayed on it and said that's all they felt like they needed, just that extra little push. So that's a, another supplement that people can, can buy. So then I'm going to switch over to medications that are only available with a prescription. So one of the things about uh, hyposexual desire disorder is that we talked a little bit about how certain antidepressants can cause uh, a decrease in desire. However, um, when I give the, my standard lecture <laughs> to other physicians about HSDD, I have a large um, algorithm chart. And at the very, very center of the chart is dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. And it is very well known that people who are depressed, sometimes anxious, low libido, exhausted, fatigue, don't have enough dopamine for some reason. And they, people have found that it plays a large role in hyposexual desire disorder um, as probably an offshoot a little bit as maybe some element of depression possibly. But people have noted in the past when they have used medications like antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications that have increased the amount of dopamine in someone's brain, they are less depressed, less anxious, and they're libido increases. So in the olden days, they actually came to the idea of using some of these dopamine medications as antidepressants, but as a happy secondary side effect, the patients re uh, reported that, More hey, and my libido got better exactly when I went on this medication. And now do we absolutely know it's because they were less depressed, so that led to them able to be more, enjoyable, enjoy, more enjoying sex or more interested in sex? We don't really know, but I have to say, this is something that works pretty well with my patients. There's an old medication called um, Buspirone, which old is an anti- come out in a while old, ago. It's, yeah, it's been out a really long time, very inexpensive, and um, has a wide range of dosing scheduling. So like you can go all the way from a really low dose, like five milligrams twice a day, all the way up to 20 milligrams twice a day. And I often do start people at low dose and say, okay, every couple of weeks, if you feel like you haven't had any effect so far, keep going up and going up. And sometimes I switch people from their Paxil or their Prozac, their SSRIs, which are the serotonin medications that might have already caused them a problem um, with lowering their desire. I'll switch them over to something like this for the two reasons. One, it'll work on their mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And two, it has a, quite a track record of increasing dopamine and therefore increasing libido. And these work pretty well. Need a prescription, need somebody who knows about this and um, 
often when I lecture about this and I speak to a lot of doctors, they come up to me afterwards and go, I've been doing this for years. But it's kind of a best kept secret because people don't really know about this. And this is one of the best ways to try because very few side effects, not expensive and good track record. And why is it so such a secret? I think because a lot of people that are not in the mental health field don't feel that comfortable prescribing mental health mm-hmm. medications. And now that there are so many newer ones, you know, everybody jumps on the new train. Like now there's, uh, you know, Celexa and Effexor and all these other things that work really well for depression, especially in women, especially for postpartum depression and things. But a lot of people don't have that thought in their head that what about those secondary side effects of decreasing their libido and Yes, of course, it's very important when people are depressed and anxious that you you take that out of the picture, but you have to look at the whole thing and what are the other things that might have an equal, if not more, impact on somebody's life. You don't want to trade one problem for another. So if you can attack both problems at once and that works, then that's great. Exactly. So that is something that I do quite a bit and that works pretty well for people and they're pretty satisfied with it because a lot of times will use something like this. And then in addition, one of those other things like the warming gel or something like that. And just people feel like, well, even if they have to work at it a little bit and take a few different things, if it's working for them, that that's ideal. Okay. So that's, um, dopamine medications and, and buspirone is only one of them. There are other ones that work as well. The other, um, uh, kind of landmark, uh, medication that was for women's low libido is something that came out in 2015, was FDA approved, and it's called Flabanserin. Weird name. The uh, brand name was called Addii, A-D-D-Y-I. And that was for a long time the only available medication specifically taken to increase female libido. So like I said, it came out in 2015. The unfortunate thing is that it got a really, really bad rap when it came out. One, it was very expensive. And, you know, I guess when people are talking about their libido, some women were willing to pay the price for it, so to speak. But I was a little incensed. Like, why should women have to pay that much when people, when men can get Viagra for like a couple of dollars a pill, you know? Mm -hmm. And and obviously I don't think the two are exactly the same. One is kind of a physical problem and this is a a more complex, um, Yes, a multifaceted problem, but, okay, so number one, it was very expensive. Number two, uh, they made us as physicians um, go through a course and answer some online questions and get a certification in order to prescribe it. And the reason for that was it had a side effect of decreasing people's blood pressure to a point where if they drank alcohol, and took this medication, which when people are looking for libido, I have to say those combinations will probably show up more often than not. Mm -hmm. Um, It could lower someone's blood pressure enough that they would pass out. Oh, no. so, So it was, they were worried that we as physicians or practitioners would be like randomly prescribing this to people and then they would drink alcohol and then they'd pass out and they'd, or they'd get in their car and they'd have an accident and it would be the fault of the medication and the doctor who prescribed it. So they, they really limited who could prescribe this medication. And it was supposed to be a daily medication. So women would have to take it every day. They couldn't drink alcohol with it. 
and the physician had to be certified to prescribe it, and it was expensive. How many prescriptions do you think I've written for this since 2015? Two. I was just going to say zero. <laughs> okay. And you would think, wow, finally, you know, like when people saw this coming down the pipe, they were like, finally, something, there's a medication for women's libido, and finally, people are taking it seriously. Well, not so fast. You know, it really was a big disaster. It cost the company a lot of money. Um, it went out of favor for a very long time. And then it kind of came back last year a little bit where they finally said, okay, we're going to make it available um, price-wise and we're going to have home delivery. Like you can write a prescription for it and then we'll deliver it to someone. They tried to do all these things that would make it more appealing to women. So since they did that, you know how many more prescriptions I've written for it? Zero. Zero. So unfortunately, a good idea, and it actually is the way that it works. It works on that dopamine serotonin balance in your head. They're not 100% sure exactly how it works, but it actually has a very good track record of studies behind it. The way that they did the studies were they had women that took it and they surveyed them, of course. I mean, how can you actually study someone's libido? It has to be by survey, right? Like, the the way that they they figure out whether this is working is the survey says from before taking it to after taking yeah, it how many test. right how many episodes of satisfying sexual events they call them SSEs <laughs> satisfying sexual events did you have before compared to after and if it went up by more than one per month it was considered statistically significant, significant and it, and Mm-hmm. So and it and it did. It had significant, uh, statistically significant um, uh, data behind it, and that's how it came to market. So I feel like it was really given a bad rap. And and actually, this year they took the the no alcohol limit off of it. So it used to be that if you gave it, you had to have somebody sign something that said, "I will never drink alcohol while I'm on this medication." Um, and then they took that lim- so that restriction away. Their, they changed their formula, or. No, I think they just came out with more studies that said the likelihood that someone's going to really pass out from it is so low that I don't know why you put it on in the first place. Got it. So that, and and the other restriction is it's the only studies were done on pre-menopausal women. Never, they have done some smaller studies on post-menopausal, but the indication, you know, when we have a drug and we write for a drug, it has to be for the indication that it was meant for. And it's indicated in low sexual drive in premenopausal women only. So I do feel like, unfortunately, it was marketed incorrectly. It was sold incorrectly. It, you know, got a bad rap. But I, I think now it's kind of past the time of being able to kind of reintroduce it and see how it does, unfortunately. Um, can we keep going? <laughs> we don't have that much time. How much more do you have? This is really fascinating, though. Two, two more things. Okay, two more. Okay, so there's one medication that just came out in 2019. Oh. It's called Vilesi, D-Y-L-E-E-S-I. Why so are these medications you of, have the you know, dumbest Game fucking names? Why? <laughs> okay, Khaleesi, Vilesi. Well, yeah, this is the one we've been waiting for because this is something that works on a neurotransmitter and it, it works on something called the melanocortin pathway. So it works on... on some stimulation cells in your brain. It's self-injectable. Oh, it's an injection. So it comes. Yes. Have you heard of people that like give themselves like um, EpiPens or other kind of self-injectors that people do at home? 
This is the same kind of concept. But in the way of Viagra, it's on demand. So it's a self-injector that we show people at the office. Not the moment, 45 minutes before. Okay. (laughs) It comes uh, in a pack of four. So four for a month. It's not recommended to use it more than four times in a month. We show the women how to self-inject. We have like a demo in the office. And 45 minutes before they think they would like to be interested in sexual activity, they self-inject. And then 45 minutes later, from what I hear from my patients, absolutely works really well. Side effects, unfortunately, especially after the first one, lots of nausea. No. Very sexy. (laughs) But as people use it more, that tends to be less and less. Um, You can't use it in people who have uncontrolled high blood pressure. Uh, But there are very few other side effects. And it seems to work really well. Probably cost is an issue. However, the company has made a, a large overture to try to get people to try it. I'm sure they think that once people try it, they'll be hooked on it and um, they'll want to get it more. But it, it's only by prescription and it only comes from specialty pharmacies. So we have to do a prescription to a mail-away pharmacy and then they mail it. But the company has said that they will give, and it, this is what's been going on, give the first few to patients for free. So they have been giving a few, and every patient that I've had use it has then wanted the prescription for it. So, and it's, it's a small, small sample size, maybe five or six people right now, because it's, it came out very recently, and then they had to straighten out the way that they were doing it through the specialty pharmacy, and then of course, right now, like no one's coming into the office because we're in, all in quarantine. But <laughs> I do think that this has a very um, good future. Mm-hmm. And I do think that um, it's something that people should keep in mind because the way that we've been looking at libido is that if all else being equal and re- the relationship's good and everything else is good, why do men use Viagra? Because everything's good, but they just can't do something. For women, all else is good, but they just can't feel that mm-hmm. and have this diagnosis. They do have to, if, they, if I want to write a prescription for this, I do have to have them fill out that survey that I talked to you about at the very beginning where we make sure it's not due to any other factors. There's no reasons why they shouldn't be on it. And this is strictly, um, HSDD by definition. And then I can do the prescription. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm so curious to hear like more stories about that experience with that injectable. Well, I, I can't, I can say that I've heard from one or two people that the effect was super amazing. <laughs> Good sex. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Well, definitely good desire. Yeah. I, would say. I mean, it's up to how, you know, whatever happens after that. But sure, the desire maybe being they there is they keep chocolate all over their bodies. And I have no idea what they did, but that actually sounds fantastic. Um, did you say you had one more? Yes, one more. And this is actually a big one. So, okay. however, you're going to edit know. this out later on. No, I'm going to keep, keep it. this one. The people love to hear okay. you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So the big one and the big one that everyone comes in asking about, but it's usually not the thing I turn to first is testosterone. Okay. Because of course, as a woman ages, it's as a matter of fact, sometimes after 35 or after 40, their testosterone levels start to go down. 
And there is a lot of literature that says lower testosterone levels, lower androgen levels, androgens are male hormones, in a woman is directly correlated with a lower level of interest in sex, lower libido, HSDD. So many, many women come in just going, why can't you just give me testosterone and I'll be fine. Doesn't work that way. It's not so easy because number one, testosterone in no way, shape or form is FDA approved for women. Never has been. And I don't think it ever will be. Companies have gone back and back Why? and back to the FDA. What's up with that? Well, the FDA are all men, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know why. Because there have been, it's available in, in other countries as usual, um, and it, there's some very good data here about it as far as whether it works and safety profile, etc. And about two or three years ago, there was a product that had been um, tested on the market, and you know, looked like it was going to be the finally, finally the time. That, that made it past the FDA. And in the end, the FDA came out with a little blurb that said, although it looks like these studies point to efficacy for testosterone helping with women's libido, more studies have to be done, which is, you, as you know, you, you look at studies all the time, right? And at the end, they always say like, more studies have to be done. We've spent millions and millions, but we're just not sure. So we can't really tell. So that's what has happened with testosterone, unfortunately. So the only way that women can be prescribed testosterone is by someone who knows what they're doing with it as far as how to dose it. And the only way they can really get it is to have it made by a compounding pharmacy, which means that I have to write a recipe for it, send it to this specialty compounding pharmacy that I'm very familiar with because I don't know if you are aware or, or listeners are aware, but in the past, compounding pharmacies have had their problems with contaminated goods and, you know, they've been shut down and the FDA has been invading them and, and trying to put controls on them. So there are very few compounding pharmacies actually left. And I use compounding pharmacies because there are a lot of different things that I feel should be available to people that have a good safety profile. And if not for the compounders, my women patients would not be able to get it. So I focus on one or two compounding pharmacies that I know very well that I trust, and they make up this um, compound, this dose of testosterone that I feel has been in the literature as safe, has good safety profile, but I stay very on top of it as far as giving the patients information about it, making sure that they only use a certain dose in a certain way so it doesn't go high enough to give them side effects or medical problems because testosterone in women we're not really sure exactly what levels people need to be at to feel better and to be physiologically um, making a difference as far as libido and other things without giving them bad side effects. So we have to really be careful on how much we use. But in general, I would say I use it a lot in the right candidates and it always comes in some way that they can put it through the skin. So it's either a cream, a gel, something like that. Oh, I mean, for men- I didn't know that. For men, testosterone products come in patches and gels and things like that, but the doses for men are way, way higher than what women would need. They're like super, super physiologic for women's purposes. So it would be really hard to do a prescription and say, okay, go get the men's version that's available commercially and then only use a tenth of the packet of gel that, that they would be giving to a man. Plus, 
how would I even get coverage for a woman? I can't send her to the pharmacy with a prescription for something that's made for men that the pharmacist knows is not approved for her to use. So I don't usually use the commercially available products. I have the compounding pharmacy make the amount that I want them to make. I explain to the patient how to use it. They use it for a certain amount of time. Sometimes I test their testosterone levels if I feel that that's necessary. And then we go by how they feel. And I would say this is probably the thing that is most likely to increase women's libido and to uh, have them come back after a month or two or three after adjusting doses and say, now I feel a difference. Because not only does testosterone help libido, it also, one of the big classic things of not having enough testosterone is my um, perimenopausal or menopausal women go to the gym and they work out and they come back and go, no matter how much I work out, I'm not building muscle mass that's because you don't have testosterone. So they get on the testosterone and I'm not trying to build the muscle mass like to, you know, to have steroids or, right. you know, something not safe, but once they're using a little bit of it and they're and they're in balance and and they go back and work out and less fatigue, better sleep, better libido, it's it's really the solution for a lot of people and known to be quite safe if you used properly. Wow, there are so many options out there. That was a really great lesson. Um, Good. That's amazing. Um, All right. We have one more question, um, which is, why is learning about this topic so incredibly important? Um, And why do you think we, we don't talk about it in sex ed? And if you could change that, kind of how would you change that? Okay, I'm going to talk about these a little bit backwards. First, why I think people don't talk about it in sex ed is because, as you know, as a sex educator, sex ed has always been based on anatomy, reproduction, sometimes contraception, but very rarely in women's desire and pleasure, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's probably why people don't talk about it much. And learning about it is so important because especially for like the young women and girls that you talk to as per teenagers and then into their high school years and college years, adults, the emphasis has to be much more on what is important to you in a relationship, in your sexuality, in your sexual life. And the sad thing is, as I said before, many women just feel like it, it follows this trajectory of like, yeah, I was interested when I was young and then, then I had babies and then now I'm older and it's just normal for me to just lose my interest. And it takes a lot for me to re-educate women to, to understand that that is not the way it is if that's not the way you want it to be. You don't have to just accept that. So just the same way that sexual education should focus on, you know, not just the anatomy of reproduction it should be the whole gamut. I mean, you're doing a great job to try to educate people as to what is out there and how can you feel about yourself. But it's, but this is part of that trajectory. This is part of that, that learning experience to that women could feel better about themselves, better about their bodies, better about what, what they want and what they deserve. Right. So as to realize that the hope is out there and sorry that it it relies so much on them having to ask for it. It shouldn't, but it really has to be this combination of we as healthcare practitioners asking about it, um, sexual educators making it okay to know about it and to want it, 
and then to put all that together so that we could give this exceptional care to women as they go through this life cycle, you know? Boy, do I know. Wow. Boy, am I glad you're my mom. Um, Thank you so much for being on. I love you to the moon and back. Um, And people listening, um, I don't know exactly when this episode is going to come out, but hopefully your book will be out by then and people can buy it and read it. Um, Where are they going to be able to purchase your book? Well, they will be able to get it on Amazon. Um, they can look me up by author since that will be the only book that I've written at that point by Rebecca Levy Gant, <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Levy Gant. And uh, hopefully people will be interested to hear what I have to say about my life as an OBGYN. Oh, I read it in two days and I know that it's because partially it's because you're my mom and I got an advanced copy, but it was so funny and fun and really, really oh. interesting and just like definitely a page turner very exciting very touching and sad and funny and just like fantastic so really hope you that's so nice mom i love you what don't you get um i get it i get it (laughs) and i hope um that everyone reads it because it's really wonderful um read more about my mom on our website and we post about her on social um if you're in napa or in the bay area look her up um what's your website premier obgyn.com you're uh, premier OBGYN Napa.com. Okay. Premier OBGYN then, Napa.com. Yeah. And you could look on medium.com and in the search bar, put my name in there, Rebecca Levy Gant. And it, it, you definitely can see the article that I referenced today about libido and many other articles that I've written. Oh, love you, mom. Thanks for being on. Love you. Good luck, honey. I love you. Are you stuck with roommates during quarantine? Or maybe your walls are a bit too thin? Try the silent sex toy, Oh My G from Ioba Toys. The pearl at the top of the toy is designed to directly massage your G-spot that will rival even the greatest oral sex. Featuring a smooth exterior and a C-shaped design, the Oh My G offers a level of G-spot stimulation you just can't get with another toy. Go to www.iobatoys.com for your new Oh My G. Ever look at your penis or vulva in the mirror and be like, damn, my part is art? Clona Willy definitely agrees. The original penis casting kit, Clona Willy and the classy counterpart, Clona Pussy, are easy to make, sex positive, and body safe. While Clona Willy makes for the most personalized sex toy on the planet, Clona Pussy makes for the most unique memento. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Katherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.